take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, if you will. Hebrews chapter 11, the second part of a two-part series. I planned to preach this last Sunday. The Lord had other plans, and I'm so appreciative of the message that Brother Jan Milton did preach and how God used it. I watched it, listened to it later. My own heart was blessed. <clears throat> we uh, got, God has ways of getting His message in, in, when we don't expect it, and uh, we just surrendered His sovereignty. Let the choir and orchestra come on in. appreciate their <clears throat> adding to the music today. Speaking on the subject, the secret of endurance, secret of endurance, from the book of Hebrews, and if Hebrews addresses any matter, practically speaking, it is this very matter, and I'll say more about the context here in just a moment. Before I read a couple passages, one from Hebrews 10 and one from Hebrews 11, I'll just kind of set the stage by saying that the highway to heaven is literally strewed with casualties. It's littered with casualties. How many of you have ever read some version of John Bunyan's classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress? Would you raise your hand? Great. I'm thrilled to see that. I don't know how long ago it was, but I'm sure you'll remember that there were several characters who told Christian, the protagonist, the main character, hey, I want to go to heaven with you. I want to go to the celestial city with you. And the, the book tells how for a time, maybe a long time for some, they walked with Christian, they might have walked with faithful before he is martyred in Vanity Fair, might have walked with Christian and hopeful. But then something happened. Some persecution or hardship arose like Jesus talked about in Matthew 13, something they didn't foresee, something they didn't feel entitled to, they didn't think they deserved, and boy, they were out of there so fast you could have played checkers on their coattails. We talked about the fact two Sundays ago that in recent years, some high-profile professing Christians, and I emphasize the word professing, have left the faith. It was quite a few years ago, I don't remember exactly the year, but best-selling author Josh Harris, who went on to become the pastor of the uh, flagship Sovereign Grace Church in Maryland. He wrote a, a book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. It created quite a stir, but when in 2019 he, Christ, he kissed Christianity goodbye, he started a tsunami. And it seems like it's become fashionable to say and come out on social media, I'm losing my faith. And because of social media platforms, you can almost keep up with it in real time. You want to keep up with the stage they're at? Visit my blog to find out where I'm at in deconstructing Christianity. Whether it's Josh Harris or Marty Sampson or Bart Campolo or Abraham Piper or Paul Maxwell or Kevin Max. And there's a much longer list than that. They've walked away from the faith. They kiss Christianity goodbye. 
This is nothing new. Jesus told us to expect this in the end times. He said if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. Paul said to Timothy in the last days, many, many will depart from the faith. Well, we've been in the last days for a while, so we just have to expect it to get worse and worse. Jesus had his Judas. Paul had his Demas. Billy Graham had his Chuck Templeton. We need this message, I think, far more than we realize. We need to understand the context of the book of Hebrews and its relevance to us today. It's enough to know it's inspired. That makes it relevant. Amen. Chapter 10, and I'll read just three verses for the sake of time, not the extended passage I had read two weeks ago. Verse 37, the writer, we don't know who it was, maybe Paul, we'll find out when we get to heaven. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, quoting from the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. I trust that's true of you today. And then we have the great hall of faith, the heroes of the faith chapter, and the Old Testament character mentioned the most is not Abraham, strangely, but is not the father of the faithful. It is Moses. Let's pick up with the segment about Moses beginning in verse 23 of chapter 11. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents, so it was really faith on their part, wasn't it? Because they saw he was a proper child, a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do were drowned. In contrast to the people I just named, Moses against unbelievable odds and opposition endured, persevered, and he didn't have as much light as we do. Now, what are we to make of these people I named and, and, and others also who have been heading for the exits as far as Christ and the church are concerned, Bible? Were they ever truly born again? How did they know so much about the Bible and articulate it so well and then just leave? How are we to account for their apostasy? How could they just shed their faith like a piece of clothing that had become out of style? We need to stop and ask these questions, and we need to answer them from the Word of God. But could I say this before I get into that? I need to remind you that the road to heaven 
is a very narrow way. And Jesus said, few there be that find it. But somehow in America, we have the idea that we need to go to the cool church. We need to go to the popular preacher's church. Let me just say, if you're looking for a popular groundswell cool movement, you came to the wrong church. We love you. We hope you come back. But we're not going to compromise to keep you. I don't know about you, but I want to persevere and lay hold of eternal life and prove that I indeed have the faith of God's elect. And we each need to have the attitude of the 11 apostles, the disciples, that Jesus addressed in the upper room and he knocked their socks off when he announced, one of you is going to betray me. And I've said it many times before, but I need to say it again. None of them looked at Judas or pointed at him. They didn't suspect him at all, but you know what they did say? Is it I? Could I be so dastardly as to do that to my master? And I'm here to tell you this morning, as much as I glory and exult in the truth of eternal security, it is not carnal security. And there's nothing incompatible with an assurance of salvation and a deep distrust of our own hearts. Did you hear me? Because you don't hear that in fundamentalism very much. We need to exhort one another daily, lest what? Lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We are made partakers of Christ if we persevere. That's not teaching work salvation. That means that we give evidence, as we talked about two weeks ago. We give evidence of being true children of God by continuing in the faith, holding the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. That, is, that point is misunderstood so much in evangelicalism. So I'll just say it. I'll just put it on the line. The Bible teaches not only the preservation of the saints, but it teaches the perseverance of the saints. I didn't get many amens. That's fine. The 11th chapter of Hebrews gives a Westminster Abbey list of Old Testament heroes whose faith persevered and triumphed. Moses stands out in this chapter, and so I want to hone in on Moses today. What was it that enabled Moses to persevere? What was it that caused him to endure against unbelievable odds and opposition. Verse 27 gives the answer. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Here it is. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. We must by faith apprehend the unseen God if we would have the patience to run the race that is set before us, as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, concluding this great hall of faith chapter. And I remind you that the Christian life is not a sprint. It is an endurance race. A word about the setting, because failure to appreciate who the writer is writing to here has caused us to deprecate the importance, the relevance of this great book, this great treatise 
to the Hebrews. The writer is addressing, for the most part, Hebrew Christians. But he recognizes that there are some among them who may not be truly born again, and they are in danger of drawing back and renouncing their professed faith in Christ. You see this throughout the book. You see, he's afraid that some among them may not be true believers. They had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, but now they were undergoing intense persecution for their faith. He refers to that back in chapter 10 and verse 33, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. In the foregoing verse, verse 32 talked about they endured a great fight of affliction. I don't know if any of us have done that. I haven't. I have not gone through anything like these Hebrew believers went through that this writer's talking to, writing to. The year is approximately 65 A.D., and within five years, Jerusalem, the great city, the holy city, the city of David, would fall to the Romans, and the beautiful temple of Herod the Great would be razed to the ground. And by the way, the temple of Herod the Great was bigger and more magnificent than the temple of Solomon. To make matters worse, Christ had not yet returned, and they were looking forward to this parousia as a deliverance. So the inspired writer here, whoever he was, we'll find out when we get to heaven, he repeatedly gives both warnings and encouragements. And the upshot is this, please don't miss this, don't quit on Jesus. Don't renounce your faith. It will yet be worth it all. There were warnings directed to those who thought they were saved but did not have the faith that would pass the test. And then there were encouragements given to those who had been willing to sacrifice and suffer, but it didn't seem to get them anywhere. For years and years, the suffering didn't let up. If anything, it got worse. So I say to you today, we desperately need these same warnings and encouragements As we look around us and see what's happening, as I've described already, we see widespread defection. It's almost popular to say, my faith is deconstructed. Widespread defection and agnosticism. We must come to two important conclusions if we would have a faith like Moses that endures, that stands the test of time. I dealt with the first one two weeks ago. I really can't say anything about it. The first, for the sake of time, the first point was endurance is evidence of true salvation, and that point is not well understood in our circles, sad to say. We think it's teaching work salvation when it's not. The writer of the Hebrews quotes Habakkuk 2.4, where it says, the just shall live by faith. It doesn't say the just should live. It doesn't say the just ought to live. It says, though the truly upright man, the truly justified man shall live by his faith. I can't go back into that. I will get to the second point and hone in on on this about Moses today, and that is faith in the unseen God is the secret of endurance. Faith in the unseen God is the secret of endurance. We read verse 27 a moment ago, the latter part of that verse. It says, Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, 
I don't know how your mind runs, but when I first read that, having read the Old Testament, immediately I thought, when was that? When did Moses see the invisible God? I think it could have been one or both of two experiences that we read about. I won't have you turn just for the sake of time. I'll just kind of recount it to you. First experience is recorded in Exodus chapter 3. It's the burning bush experience on the backside of the desert of Midian. Moses had fled from Egypt alone, and there the unseen God appeared to him in a burning bush, a bush that was on fire but was not consumed. And Moses said, as he realized what was happening, let me turn aside and see this great sight. I think that's probably would have been our reaction too. And then a voice came to him out of that bush, and it was the voice of Jehovah. It's where God revealed himself as the great I am, the self-existent one to Moses, and commissioned him to go back and to deliver Israel. So when he forsook Egypt for the first time, he ran away for the fear of Pharaoh. But once Jehovah revealed himself in his glory and greatness, isn't it amazing how this fear dissipated? And that just echoes the truth of that passage quoted in 1 Peter chapter 3 from the book of Isaiah. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart, set Him apart in your heart, and let Him be your fear and Him be your dread. And listen, when we fear the greater God, we will not fear the lesser man. So Moses returned to Egypt, boldly went into Pharaoh and said, let my people go, thus saith the Lord. Beloved, no wonder this same writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. I mean, Moses saw a consuming fire that represented God. And yet the bush wasn't consumed. By the way, God's favorite similitude in the Bible is not a dove. It's not some other symbol, it's fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Fire purifies, fire terrifies. My wife gets real nervous if a neighbor just, she just sees a plume of smoke, somebody burning trash out our way. Fire purifies, fire terrifies, fire consumes, fire ignites. Our God does all of the above. He certainly did that for Moses. Moses was afraid to look upon God in that burning bush. So it could have been the experience of Moses at the burning bush that is referred to here as when he saw that which was invisible. He endured as seeing him who was invisible. Or it could have been years later, the experience Moses had with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai or Horeb. When Moses prayed, if you remember on that occasion, he prayed a very unusual prayer, Lord, show me thy glory. And the Bible says God passed by Moses, he hid him in the cliff of a rock, and he said, no man can see my face and live, but I'm going to cover your face with my hand, and I'll pass before you all my goodness, all my grace, and I'll allow you to see my back parts. John MacArthur says that's the afterglow. I like that. And just the afterglow of God was so glorious, 
Moses couldn't get over it, and he was transformed himself. His face shone. Both experiences were sufficient to cause Moses to forsake Egypt. The first time it was by himself, and the second time it was with all the people of Israel. Listen, one who has seen God does not need anything else to induce him to forsake the world. So three things I want to leave with you today. I hope you'll remember these. Faith is what causes us to see the unseen God, and it's the secret of endurance. How is that so? Three, in three ways. First of all, it embraces the reproach of Christ. Verse 26, Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of reward. Now, what is the reproach of Christ? And how in the world can this be said of an Old Testament saint hundreds of years before Christ even came? What's the reproach of Christ? All right, here it is. It's the shame, the disgrace, and the discredit that one bears for Christ's sake. And we need to realize how Jesus identifies with us as His people. Who, who was the real Redeemer of Israel the night the Passover was instituted and the visit of the death angel was averted because of the application of blood? The real Redeemer was Christ. Who was the one who delivered Israel from the Egyptian army and from the waters of the Red Sea? You say, oh, it was Moses. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't Moses. It sure wasn't Charlton Heston. No, it was the creator of all. It was the angel of the covenant. It was none other than Jesus Christ. And I don't know how much Moses understood about the coming deliverer, but he, he, he knew a lot more than we probably give him credit for. He probably knew more than Abraham did, although Jesus said about Abraham in John 8, verse 56, he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The day of Christ. He knew enough about Jesus to be willing to suffer the reproach of Christ. The word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. By identifying with Messiah's people. He bore the same reproach at the hands of the Egyptians that Jesus would have to endure in the highest degree at the hands of the Jews centuries later. Moses was unable to do it. How? Why? Because he saw him who is invisible. He had respect under the recompense of the reward that he would receive from Christ the judge. And he came to the firm, settled conclusion, please don't miss this, the very worst that Christ has to offer is better than the best of the world. Did you hear that? The very worst that Christ has to offer is better than the best of the world. That needs to be screamed from the housetops today. Have you come to that settled conclusion? Or if God doesn't meet your expectations and what you think you're entitled to, are you out of there? If you are called upon to suffer for Jesus' sake, will you glory in it? Because it's coming, folks. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I, I, the church isn't ready for the suffering that's right around the corner, folks. 
please cut me some slack there. I'm really exercised about this. I want to be happy. I want to lift your spirits. And I think the Word of God will do that if the Spirit of God is teaching us. But we have no idea what's around the corner. We're so insulated in America. The apostles being flogged by the Sanhedrin there in the early days of the church as is recorded in the book of Acts. The Bible says they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Will you do that? When you have to bear the reproach of Christ, will you consider it to be a badge of honor? Or will you be like Judas the apostate? Who, If the price is right, you'll sell Jesus out. Judas did it for a paltry 30 pieces of silver, just the price of a slave in those days. Why? He refused to bear the reproach of Christ. He was looking to ride the crest of Jesus' popularity, and he was popular for a time in his earthly ministry. He was looking to ride the crest of that popularity into kingdom glory with Christ. He didn't want any part of this suffering and rejection and crucifixion. And when Jesus started talking that way, he got disillusioned. And he said, well, I'm going to cut my losses and take what I can. So he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Sad thing is, I know some professing believers that will sell Jesus out for less than that. When the boys at the office or at the sports venue take the lovely name of Christ in vain, what do you do? When somebody writes you or texts you and says, OMG, what do you do? And now Christians are doing it back. I'm sorry. That's awful. That's awful. Christ is always identified with His people. Isaiah 63, verse 9, in all of their afflictions, He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. Jesus is the angel of His presence. I think of Stephen, the first martyr. Yes, it was Stephen upon whom the rocks descended and crushed the life out of him because of his bold preaching to the Jewish people there, this spirit-filled, courageous deacon. He was a deacon. But remember, it was Jesus who stood up from the throne to receive him. That shows how he identified with this man. In every other place in the Scripture, the New Testament, Jesus is represented as seated at the right hand of God. But here he stood up to receive his martyr home. It was Christians that Saul of Tarsus was after to arrest and bring them back to trial in Jerusalem, and if he had anything to do with it, have them executed. But the question came from Christ on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? In persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, Saul was striking out right at Jesus. Christ suffers in and with the least of His people. What a privilege it is to have Jesus, the form of the fourth, in the fiery furnace with us, just as He was with the three Hebrew children. 
But even when we cannot see him with our physical eye, by faith we can see the invisible and know that he is with us because he's promised, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He's nearer than our breathing. Moses endured because he saw the unseen God. And it caused him to embrace the reproach of Christ. Secondly, it emboldened his separation. Not only did he embrace the reproach of Christ, it emboldened his separation. Verse 27a, by faith he forsook Egypt. The verb is singular, suggesting that Moses went alone the first time. And at first glance, that might seem to be a contradiction. Because in Exodus chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, it suggests that Moses fled to Midian for fear of Pharaoh. So he wasn't fleeing in a courageous way. He wasn't forsaking Egypt out of courageous difference here. So was it fear that caused him to flee, or was it disdain for the pleasures of Egypt? Well, there are no contradictions in the Bible, Amen. It is clear by the time Moses returned after the burning bush experience to deliver Israel, he had forsaken Egypt in his heart. He was not afraid of Pharaoh, so he did forsake Egypt out of disdain for Egypt. And Egypt in the Bible is a very clear picture of the world. As believers, we are commanded to come out from among them, the world, and be separate, saith the Lord. As we read in 1 John chapter 2, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And if we are going to practice outward separation, please listen to me. If we're going to practice outward separation as we're commanded, it's going to have to start with inward renunciation. And some of us haven't done that yet. Moses made a complete break with the world in his heart. He counted the cost of losing everything and incurring the displeasure of who the world reputed as the great ones. So let's, be, let's dig a little deeper here. From whom or from what did Moses separate? Well, first of all, he separated from the royalty of the palace in Egypt. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, At first glance, that seems to be an act of ingratitude. How could he refuse to be called the son of this woman who had adopted him, had pity on him as a baby, spared him from the wrath of her own dad, who was out to kill all the Hebrew babies? You've got to realize, Moses has come to years. He knew who the real king was, and it wasn't Pharaoh. And so he knew who the people of the real king were. And it was time to separate and show where his his true colors were. But there's always a charm about the society of the great. I'll never forget when the Queen of England visited the Cayman Islands. You never saw such a big to-do in all your life, Queen Elizabeth. Everybody wanted to get a glimpse of the queen, have their photograph taken with the queen, attend a a meal with the queen, Queen Elizabeth II. I mean, that was their claim to fame. We got halfway, half as excited about King Jesus coming back as they got about Queen Elizabeth visiting the island. We'd be on fire for God. 
Moses knew who the real king was. Every bond that we have, humanly speaking, must be severed or at least must, it must seem as hate compared to our love for Christ and our desire to follow Him. And I may be speaking to somebody here today, and I don't know. Nobody, I've been reading your email, and nobody's been squealing on you. But I may be speaking to someone, you've got an unsaved boyfriend or girlfriend, and you think they're the greatest thing in the world. Oh, and they, and they may say, I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll go to church. I don't have anything against church. But they have no desire to follow your Christ. Their default setting is not to open the Word of God and get food for their soul every day. Could I give a little bit of advice to you? As hard as it may be to cut that relationship, if they won't go to heaven with you, don't go to hell with them. We must break with every fond bond if it is not of Christ. Secondly, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of Egypt. That, must, that means that, that he had to cut it off with all those circles of science and intelligentsia back in Egypt. He had to be willing to be considered ignorant and backward to bear the reproach of Christ. And when you say you don't believe in evolution, and you give the reasons why, as you'll hear next week, there'll be the, the, the intelligentsia, the elite, will call you backward and ignorant. And it's amazing how fundamentalists especially have just, oh, the worst thing in the world is to, is to have that label, backward. Well, the apostles were taken note of that they were uneducated men, but they also took note of them that they had been with Jesus. That's what counts. Moses had to tear himself away from the intelligentsia of Egypt, and then he had to tear himself away, obviously, from many a friend. If he was in the court of Pharaoh for 40 years, he'd made some close associations that were probably very dear to him, but he was willing to cut it off with them. He was willing to disassociate from them and associate with the unpopular party of the nation of Israel, whom the king on the throne in Egypt sought to crush and subjugate. Wasn't easy. That was a pretty big deal. And so I ask you, are you willing to break with anybody who would keep you from following Jesus? Oh, I don't mean you're not a friend to them. I don't mean that you don't love them and wouldn't go out of your way and give the shirt off your back to help them. But as far as being a bosom pal and letting them influence you and listening to the siren call of the devil through them, is your attitude, take the world, but give me Jesus. Jesus left the angels of heaven for your sake. Cannot you leave the best of company down here for His? And herein lies the reason the faith of so many Christians is weak and stifled. There's no separation from the world in it. There's no renunciation from the heart. Evangelicalism in America is plagued with a mindset that says, I'll get as much of the 
this world's pleasures and honors and riches as I possibly can, consistent with my profession of religion. And people that say that fail to see that the world with all of its arts and sports and culture and politics and business and media is the same world that crucified Jesus Christ. You say, well, we've got to redeem the arts. Be careful. Yeah, let your kids get a, a well-rounded education, but be ready to pull them out of the fire, hating the garments spotted by the flesh. If we really love Jesus more than the world, we'll realize that we're not of this world. And we'll say with the Apostle Paul, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And we better get ready. We'll be considered extreme if we do that. I'm going to borrow your sanctified imagination for the rest of the message, okay? What could Moses have done here? Moses could have rationalized like many professing Christians do. I don't want to create a stir. I don't, I don't want to risk losing a friend or losing so much. He could have rationalized this. Providence has brought me to the throne of Egypt. It doesn't make any sense to just abandon it. Providence. Moses didn't do that. He realized that the true providence of God never tempts us to sin. And I don't know how many people I've heard and my wife has heard and my wife and I together have heard saying, but God wants me happy, doesn't he? And I shock him when I answer no, he doesn't. Really? He wants you holy. And when you are holy and you obey him, happiness is the byproduct of that. Remember that because you're going to need to tell somebody that. We can always interpret providence as being favorable when we want to do something anyway. When Jonah was running from God down to Joppa instead of going to Tarshish like God commanded him, how providential that he found a ship going there. When Cain was filled with murderous thoughts and revenge toward his brother Abel, how providential that he found an instrument that could be used as a club. It must be God's will, right? Folks, our hearts are just wicked enough we'll do that if we don't see how wicked and unscriptural it is. Scriptural. Beloved, be afraid of any providence that makes sin easy. And I'm going to smash a sacred cow now. I hear Christians all the time talking about putting out a fleece like Gideon did. Now, Gideon's a great man in the Bible. Little boy, I think we're going to dedicate him soon, Gideon. I love that name. But Gideon is not a hero in the Bible because of his putting out the fleece. And nowhere in the Bible are we told to do that and emulate his example. Gideon was naturally shy and retiring. You know, when, when he was found, he was hiding from the Midianites. And God condescended to him to give this double evidence that, yes, God had called him. Nowhere is Gideon's example emulated, nowhere is it commended, nowhere is it commanded of us. 
This is hardly analogous to a situation where we put an arbitrary choice in front of God. If you think it must be God's will for you to do what you want to do anyway, because the south wind is blowing softly, the south wind of providence, a favorable circumstance, don't be surprised if you don't end up where Jonah ended up, in the middle of a hurricane. Moses could have reasoned that way. He could have said, oh, providence has decreed that, that I should just remain here in the court. He could have reasoned, you know, I could accomplish a lot more good if I just kept my position. I, I, I could have more influence for Christ. Who knows? Pharaoh might get converted. And following the same rationale, Christians sometimes try to justify why they remain in a church that's dead or apostate, teaches doctrine with which they don't agree, and they think, oh, but I can be so useful. I'll be a bright light in a dark place. Yeah, you know what will happen? The darkness will snuff you out. And that's the reason some Christians remain in secret Masonic orders that are wicked and wrong, and they have to take oaths that they're forbidden to take in the Bible, or they uh, pursue a compromising career. Beloved, if you have the eye of faith like Moses that sees him who is invisible, you will do as he did, and you will look not to usefulness, but to righteousness. Beware of judging what is lawful by any human standard. Faith still emboldens separation. Moses could have compromised instead of seeing things in black and white. He could have had the best of both worlds instead of being so straight-laced and puritanical. The Bible says he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But what could he have done? Well, he could have said to his surrogate mother, the princess, and to others, well, I'm an Egypto-Israelite. Or I'm an Israelito-Egyptian. Spurgeon said that. That's not original. Aren't you glad he didn't? No, Moses was going to be all or nothing for Christ. He would either be hot or cold. He wasn't going to be lukewarm. So I tell you, brethren, today, if God be God, serve Him. If Jehovah's God, serve Him. If Baal be God, serve Him. If it's right to be an Israelite, be an Israelite. If it's right to be an Egyptian, be an Egyptian. There's no middle course. One of these days, Christ is going to separate the sheep from the goats. There's no hybrid third species there. Faith in the unseen God embraces the reproach of Christ. Faith in the unseen God emboldens separation, which is an anathema topic nowadays. And finally, faith in the unseen God empowers the doing of God's will. This is so, so wonderful. Verses 28 and 29. Verse 28, we see about Moses' great exploits of faith after he took that crucial first step of separation from Egypt, which represents the world. Verse 28, through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. This refers to the fact that, are you listening? Moses instituted the Passover. There had been no Passover before Moses did it, at, right when they were, Israel was about to leave Egypt. 
The man who has faith will not only be separated from the world, but he will see what others cannot see. By the way, the separated man has spiritual discernment. The separated man or woman uh, has power with God. As you've heard me say so many times before, it was Abraham, the man separated uh, from the world, living in tents, while Lot, his compromising nephew, pitched his tent towards Sodom, and before long was inside Sodom, and sad to say, Sodom got inside him. It was Abraham, the separated man, who had power to help when something happened to Sodom. And Lot was taken and kidnapped. Through faith, Moses kept the Passover. He saw what others could not see. He was the first given to see that perfect safety and rest is found only under the shelter of the blood of the Lamb. We sing about that in that great song, When I See the Blood, Find Peace and Shelter Under the Blood. And then verse 29 goes on to say, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, the saying to do, were drowned. After the sprinkling of the blood on the doorposts, that was redemption by blood. Then there was redemption by power at the waters of the Red Sea. There follows an entrance into a new life. It's a life of victory. Israel triumphed over Pharaoh and all of his army. God delivered Israel through the waters of the Red Sea. He had them roll up like a scroll on either side, and the the whole nation got across. It wasn't just six inches of water either. And then as soon as they got out safely on the other side, God let the waters recede, and all of the hosts of Pharaoh's army were drowned. And the next day they saw them washed up on the shore. Faith enabled them to do God's will. Let me close with this. I'll be done in a moment. Moses had four possible responses, depending on which voice he listened to as he stood there at the waters of the Red Sea. The impassable waters in front of him, mountains on either side, Pharaoh's host, army closing in on them from the rear. The first response would have been that dictated by the voice of despair, which says, give up, just resign yourself, nothing you can do. That's the voice of fatalism. Or he could have listened to the voice of cowardice, which says, retreat, go back to the world, things are better back in Egypt. Don't be so straight-laced and idealistic. It's too hard. It's too impractical to live the Christian life. He could have listened to that voice. Or he could have listened to the voice of presumption that says, uh, do something, don't just stand there. I mean, if the sea is before you, just march into it and expect a miracle. Turn on the inspirational TV channel, you'll hear that. Claim your miracle today. But thank God... Moses didn't listen to the voice of presumption, the voice of cowardice. He listened to the voice of faith, which listens not to despair, not to cowardice, not to presumption. It doesn't consider what's inside of us because we're full of forebodings and misgivings. It doesn't consider what's in front of us, the impassable waters of circumstances. It doesn't consider what's behind us, all the hordes of opposition descending upon us, the people that disagree with us and hate us. Faith looks up and sees the unseen God saying, 
Stand still and see the salvation of God. Do you think God still works that way? Beloved, let's do the will of God day after day. It's by faith and patience. It says here in Hebrews 10, 36, we inherit, we receive the promises. Between God's giving to Abraham the promise that his seed would be like the stars of heaven, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, between that and between the fulfillment of that promise lay years of patient obedience. Let's do the will of God every day keeping our eyes on Jesus as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, looking unto Him, the author and finisher of our, of our faith, leaving all the results, all the consequences to God. He's going to make it all come out right just as He promised in His time and in His way just like He did for Moses. Beloved, don't faint right before harvest. We need this message because things are about to get bad. I, I am not a prophet nor the son of the prophet, but I see some things on the horizon that the mainstream media is not telling you. And, and if, we don't, if we don't heed messages like this, if we don't get braced for what's coming, I'm afraid some of us are going to be blown away. We need the message that was given to the Hebrews in the same circumstance. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Don't give up on Christ. God is faithful. Jesus is worth it. Don't renounce your faith. And Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Oh God, give us a faith that perseveres, that goes the distance. Help us like Moses to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us to make sure that we have the faith of God's elect. Because the ones that you have chosen, you tell us, will endure unto the end. We'll be glorified. Everyone who's justified will be glorified. May we examine our hearts. May we not cherish a phony faith, a misplaced faith, a spurious faith. You tell us, examine your hearts. Make sure you're in the faith. Help us to do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.